Isabella Tree, I am so thrilled that you're able to join us for 20 Questions With. I came across you because my mum, who is a real nature and wildlife lover and an incredibly creative photographer, actually, she discovered you for herself on Instagram and then pushed your account my way and said this would be someone who would be fantastic to interview for your podcast, 20 Questions With. And you're there in what looks like the sort of beautiful room that I would expect you to be sitting in. Lots of books all around, a big smile on your face. Before I ask you my first question, I'll just set this out very briefly. So you guys, you with your husband, run somewhere called NEP, and that's in West Sussex. And you've essentially rewilded a farm. You've won awards for your writing. This book now is, I think, your sixth book your fifth or sixth book for anyway for adults but you've also written for children too so you're a massive multitasker you employ lots of people but the project is so big that you also have volunteers so first question almost everyone has heard now of the concept of rewilding but not everyone perhaps really gets what it is or has really looked into it so Isabella tell us in very simple terms what rewilding is well, it's very different from conventional conservation. Conventional conservation really is about targeting a particular species or a suite of species that you're wanting to save. So there might be a nightingale on the brink of extinction. So you would um, create a nature reserve that would be specifically targeted to saving that creature. So it's all about kind of holding nature under control in a way in stasis um, for providing the conditions that would be optimal for that particular species or even providing saving a habitat that might be under threat. So it's very labor intensive, it's very expensive, and these are kind of very isolated small areas in general, which have been our Noah's Arks. I mean, without them, I mean, not to do them any disservice, that without them, we would have lost many more species than we have already. But in terms of getting nature back as a whole and raising our biodiversity again, which is falling off a cliff, we need to think in terms of, systems and processes and how do we get nature functioning on much larger scales. So rewilding really is about letting go. It's about putting the certain drivers into place. So if you just left land, you know, that has been severely depleted, that's got no kind of nature value whatsoever, really, which is what NEP was before we started rewilding, it's got nothing you're needing to preserve as such, nothing you need to focus on. But it is very depleted. It's been abused with chemicals for 70 years under intensive farming. How do you get that piece of land to start being functional and dynamic again? You can do some initial interventions. If you just left it alone, let's say, it would take, you know, tens, hundreds, possibly thousands of years to become really biodiverse. So you can go in and you can do some initial interventions like restoring natural water systems. We rewilded about two kilometers of the river Ada that crosses our land. We restored ponds, we, we dug some more. And that is a one-off intervention that you can then sit back from and just let be. Then you can allow vegetation to recover. So you can allow the thorny scrub to come in, you know, the hawthorn, blackthorn, dog rose, bramble, all the species we love to hate. You let them come back and become the nursery for um, naturally regenerating oaks and other trees. And then to add the, the final kind of bit of dynamism, you can introduce free roaming herds of herbivores to start bashing up that thorny scrub. And then you have a really interesting mix of, of processes going on, vegetation trying to kind of outcompete the herbivory. Um, and that's where you get this amazing mosaic of habitats beginning to 
to function and compete with each other. And then as human beings, essentially, you sit back and let nature get on with it. And you allow the boom and bust scenarios that usually scare the wits out of us to happen and to perform. And that then, you know, shows you nature happening in all sorts of ways you can never predict. Um, that's the really exciting thing about rewilding is letting nature take the driving seat and, and sitting back and watching. And once nature is allowed to have the driving seat, then it does spring back immensely quickly, doesn't it? That's, I think, been one of the most astonishing things. If you think that 20, 23 years ago, net was ploughed fields again and again and again, every year ploughed. There were, you know, our river was canalised. Nature was clinging on in perhaps a couple of tiny ancient woodlands, um, a bit on, on the lake, but really nothing to write home about. And now we've become this biodiversity hotspot where we have some of the most endangered creatures in the UK. We've got nightingales, turtle doves that are likely to go extinct in the next couple of decades. But we're probably the only place in the UK where turtle dove numbers are actually rising. We've got purple emperor butterflies, by far the biggest colony in in the UK now, which is also an endangered butterfly, very dramatic, our second largest butterfly. We've got peregrine falcons nesting in a tree, which is almost unheard of. They're usually associated with cliffs and cathedrals, but they're behaving very differently here. You know, last year we had a large tortoiseshell butterfly, which was thought to be extinct in the UK 50 years ago and is now breeding at NEP. So these these miracles keep happening. Um, And that's the amazing surprise of it, how quickly these things have have colonised of their own accord. When you say that turtle doves are... May, may go extinct in the coming decades. Do you mean within the UK or overall around the no, world? In, in the UK, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, numbers are declining dramatically on, in Europe, but nowhere like they are here in the UK. I mean, when I was growing up in the 60s, you know, we had 250,000 turtle doves, and now we're probably down to just a few thousand. So massive decline. And is that just down to what we're doing in this country? Or is that also about them being shot elsewhere in Europe? Yeah, I mean, definitely in Europe, we, we haven't shot turtle doves um, in, in Britain for many decades, but they certainly are are shooting them in vast numbers in, in Europe. In some countries, I mean, some have stopped, some still are shooting illegally but you know places like Malta and the Lebanon they're still absolutely carte blanche all season but even so in Europe the numbers aren't declining as fast as they have in the UK and really that is because of loss of habitat in the UK it's loss of of the kind of thorny scrub that the kind of places that they can get protection from predation but it's also loss of the the, the protein-rich wildflower seeds that they depend on for food. Something that struck me very, very forcefully in sort of latish May last year, I was on holiday in Tuscany near the town of Pienza, near Montepulciano. And we stayed in a hotel that kind of opened into this valley. And we'd go on these wonderful morning walks. It got very hot later on, of course, even at that time of year. But because we weren't in midsummer, everything was lush and green. It was not how I sort of remembered Tuscany. And in this valley, nightingales sung around us. And we saw them. Now, the chances of stumbling across a valley that isn't a nature reserve in this country and just being serenaded by nightingales, I would have thought now, sadly, is remote. And yet you at NEP have, I think last year, you you said you had 50 pairs? So, yes, last year, yes, I think we we had 50 singing males. So that's 
you know, it's not guaranteed that every one of those birds was paired up and breeding, but we we know from the fact that they stop singing after a certain period of time. The, it's the males that, that sing, attracting the females over as they fly over later from Africa. And once the males stop singing, they are, uh, you know, their time is occupied by feeding the chicks. They feed with the females. So, um, and most of the nightingales do pipe down. So we're pretty sure there was a very high breeding percentage. But we also have a spillover effect now at NEP. So you do hear nightingales on farmland around us, but quite often those those males are still singing kind of lonely heart bachelors very late into the season. So you know they haven't actually been able to pair up. They haven't found the habitat that the female wants. Give us a sense of the importance of this farm to your family, because it's been in the family for a couple of hundred years, hasn't it? And you, you kind of got, got to a point with your husband, I think, where you realised that farming it as you were was not sustainable. It wasn't going to work economically. And rewilding it, turning it into this incredible safari is, is a word you use. You know, book your safari trip at NEP has actually not only been a massive boon for nature, but it's work for, working for you guys economically. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we, we don't we don't call ourselves a farm anymore because we're no longer in the business of primary food production. We're in the in the business of, of nature production, I suppose. Our particular problem is that we're on incredibly marginal land. It's very, very hard to farm. It, we, we sit on 320 metres of low-wheeled clay. It's an absolute pig to farm. So it means that, you know, for six months of the year, you in the winter when it's really wet, you can't get heavy machinery onto the land. Sometimes you can't sow spring crops. So you just can't compete with with farms on lovely loamy soil. It's just really not a viable business. It took us 17 years to realize that. I mean, we did everything we possibly could to make it work. We diversified, we invested in infrastructure, we had three amazing dairy herds, but it's really the wrong land to be doing intensive agriculture on. And it was only ever transformed into intensive agriculture after the Second World War, during the Second World War. So it's not naturally, it's it's metier, it's not what it should be doing. So rewilding was seemed, you know, we had a one and a half million pound debt with farming that we needed to clear. So we sold our dairy herds, we sold our farm machinery, we sold our milk quota, which in those days was at a peak, which was very, very lucky timing. And we cleared our debts. So in a way, we were sort of already relieved of that burden of a failing business. But what has happened with rewilding, again, has been a completely unexpected outcome, is that actually it's made us a much more profitable business as an estate. We we still get farming a sort of environmental subsidy for what we're doing. We're now providing ecosystem services, they're called, you know, public goods instead of food. Um, we're providing um, flood mitigation, water purification, air purification, soil restoration, biodiversity, all these things that we also desperately need as society. Um, so we get a payment for that. We don't know if that will continue under you know, the new post-Brexit shakeup of farming subsidies. We hope it will. But even if it doesn't, we now have income streams that are really working for us. So we started up an ecotourism business probably only about 10 years ago, when we realized there was such a demand for people wanting to come and see the wildlife we have here. And that now turns over about a million pounds a year. It's a, it's a small business. I mean, we have nine glamping units and a, a small wildflower meadow with maximum 60 people. So it's not massive. 
and we have safaris and guided tours with we have about 20 different ecologists who who lead these tours really wonderful young very engaged and passionate people but we make a 20% margin on that on on that turnover and as farmers you know we were making plus 1% if we were lucky minus 1% if we weren't so it's completely transformed how we how we run the the estate and then we have all those buildings which before used to cost an arm and a leg to keep the roof on the agricultural infrastructure which we now let out as light industrial use office space storage and the people renting those buildings off us employ 200 people. So that's 200 people back in the rural environment. And we ourselves are now employing 50 people when we were employing 23 under farming before. It's totally how, unexpected. We never thought this would happen. How big is, how, how many acres do you have? And how scalable is what you're doing, essentially? We are on 3,500 acres. And really, the book that we've just published Charlie and I my husband and I um the book of wilding it's a practical guide to rewilding big and small is all about how you can scale it up or scale it down we feel passionately that everyone has a part to play in rewilding no matter how how big or small the area of land you have under your control even if you have just a window box or even if you don't even have a window box but you can put pressure on your local council to do things that are better for nature I think we see rewilding as a spectrum, essentially, where you have the wildest end of the of the scale, which is the wilderness areas like Yellowstone National Park or Chernobyl Exclusion Zone or the great wilderness areas of the world. And then you have you scaling it down. You come to, you know, tens of thousands of acres or you get smaller and you get to your nets where you can have your free roaming animals. But obviously you can't have apex predators. So you need to do a bit more intervention to juggle that, to make it the system work. And then you can go down to, say, 100 acres where you probably wouldn't be able to have free roaming animals out there all year round without supplementary feeding. You couldn't have wild herds, but you could have a few interventions with free roaming animals, a few pigs every now and again, a herd of herd of ponies, perhaps. And then you get down to 40 where it's probably completely unviable to have a herd of anything. But you can become the herbivore yourself. You become the keystone species. You can coppice like in the in, you know like like the herbivores would do. Um, you can create ponds and dams like a beaver. And then you get down to the scale of a garden, where again you're having to do more intervention. So it's not just about letting go. It's actually about thinking with a rewilding mind, but you know being messier, being wilder, but. Um, how you how you replicate or stimulate the kind of natural processes that are happening in a huge landscape into your backyard. You say you don't have or you can't have apex predators. Some people associate the idea of rewilding with the reintroduction of wolves or the reintroduction of lynx. Where do you stand on that? And do you think it might ever be feasible in the south of England? Could it be feasible up in, in the highlands in Scotland? Absolutely. And I think that, you know, we really need to keep this ambition on the horizon um, and preferably the close horizon. You know, we, we know that that wolf numbers and lynx numbers are recovering in Europe to dramatic degrees and people are learning to live with these apex predators again. In Germany, which is a densely populated country, they have more than 100 packs of wolves now. And in general, the population, the public in Germany are really pro them. There are 
problems with with farmers and we have to address that and acknowledge that and recognize that but we do have strategies to be able to live with wolves again i've just been in portugal where we they are um have got this amazing breed of dog which is protecting very effectively cattle herds and sheep sheep flocks in the middle of the most mountainous remote country you can imagine from wolves so it is possible to go back to the days when we used to live with these predators and they're hugely important and in in britain it is very difficult for us to think this way because we've been without these predators for much longer than europe because we ex- hunted them to extinction much much earlier being islands than continental europe i think the lynx is probably a a, a very good candidate for the introduction reintroduction in the near future it's a stealth predator um it lives in close canopy woodland so in vast areas of forest perhaps kielder or in the uplands um we could have lynx again they have huge territories so they'd roam for for large distances but they're incredibly shy so you'd hardly you probably wouldn't even see them and their main prey is roe deer and we have a real proliferation of roe deer at the moment so that would be very welcome but wolves i think you know if we're going to ask and expect countries across the world to live with tigers and leopards and we should in europe be able to live with apex predators too and why is the idea to someone like you or to someone like me so attractive can can you articulate why having wolves back in britain or lynx back in britain is so exciting it's i think it's just um i guess it's what eo wilson the great american biologist calls biophilia it's that sort of connection with living things that we you know we've been urban for just a blip of our evolution our human evolution and we do have a visceral connection to wildlife and particularly to predators you know i again in portugal you know we've just been looking at cave paint cave art you know rock carvings and the way that human beings related to wild animals is so visceral i think we know that frisson of excitement if you know if you've ever been to romania and you know that there are bears out there the chances of you seeing them are so remote but you are kind of longing for that glimpse we know there've been studies done that in europe that if there is an area where there are known to be apex predators you actually get much more tourism you get greater footfall that's where people want to go to for walks on their weekends it's that it's that frisson of excitement that we are it's not just us at the top of the food chain anymore we are sharing the world with wild animals again paint a picture of some of the more unusual animals that you work with at net well we have i mean they may sound very usual and normal but we are we have you know that the our our drivers of our system here are de-domesticated animals so you know we have old english longhorn um that are doing a very good imitation of their extinct ancestor the aurochs they've got these wonderful sweeping horns and they're now out there living in naturalistic herds so you follow when you're out on you know go go out on a morning like this morning and you're you're walking through the that thorny scrub which now looks much more like the the serengeti the the african bush than it does um a typical scene in sussex you're following animal trails and then suddenly you come upon a herd of 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 cattle with their calves at foot and it 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 feels like you know you are interacting with wild animals again you can walk around the corner and suddenly a 
a posse of 20 galloping exmoors goes past you again with foals at foot and and um colts play fighting and um you know the stallion you know sort of gearing up behind it's all it it feels very very wild out there again we have tamworth pigs doing a a, a sort of uh standing in for wild boar and you never know when you're going to come across them they dive for swan mussels and and acorns at the bottom of the ponds and who would think that a domestic pig would ever do that you know you one of the most interesting things is seeing animals that you consider to be farmyard animals actually suddenly having these extraordinary characters and and curiosity and intelligence and behaviors that you you've never seen before because they're just allowed to express them i think you say in the book that they behave these pigs a little bit like hippopotamuses <laughs> they do. They can hold their breath underwater, which I think is very rare for a land mammal. Mammal. I think we're only we're one of the rare ones that can do it. But so can pigs. Who knew? And beavers. And beavers is our latest excitement. So um, we introduced. Uh, uh, unfortunately, we haven't got there yet in Britain that we can uh, accept these animals in the wild. Um, that they have a right to be there. Our native mammal that is one of the biggest keystone species in the world, apart from humans and elephants. Um, it probably has the, the biggest um, impact on the environment and hugely positive for biodiversity and carbon storage and flood mitigation and water purification and everything else that we need. Um, but so far, um, the government in England, at least, is only allowing us to release these beavers into enclosures. We've been allowed a temporary enclosure. So we have six acres that we have these beavers in. And the water running into this area was literally just a trickle in a, in a, in a ditch. And within three months, they had created probably two acres of open water. And now they have three huge dams. You go into that enclosure and it is the most incredible watery kingdom. You can hear nightingales, you can hear turtle doves touring at the moment. We've even just seen a a huge sea trout that has somehow, since we've removed the weirs in the River Ada, um, we moved six blockages, obstacles, the Environment Agency couldn't even remember why they were there. And now sea trout are migrating up the Ada and somehow this massive sea trout has got into the beaver pen. How it's going to get out, I have no idea, but it just goes to show that, you know, beavers and migrating fish can coexist. It's the most magical place. So it's it's a, it's amazing to have them out there again. How big a part of what you're doing, Isabella, is a part of the government's blueprint for our ecological future in Britain? Well, the signs have been, you know, really encouraging, I'd say, over the last few years. You know, we've, we've had the Environment Act, which is really a kind of groundbreaking piece of legislation, which is really gearing up to nature restoration across Britain and particularly landscape recovery. So thinking large scale and connectivity. So how do we connect biodiversity hotspots like NEC, NEC with existing wildlife and nature reserves so that wildlife can flow through the landscapes again? Hugely important in the face of climate change and, and disease and pollution and genetic bottlenecks. So we've got to think of how we can have living landscapes through through even farmland. We need to have these ribbons running through. And then we've got the commitment to, to 30 by 30. So 30% of our terrestrial land and 30% of our marine um, areas to be functioning for nature by um, 2030. That's a huge ambition. It's easy to say, but how are we actually going to be able to get it across the line? 
there's a big if about that. Um, I think most ecologists would be quite skeptical that these claims can actually be achieved. But certainly, I think if we embrace rewilding it more, you know, enthusiastically, we can get there because it can happen so fast. We've been hugely encouraged by the number of politicians and policymakers who've visited NEP, you know, of, of all persuasions, literally from from you know the House of Lords to MPs to local councils. There is genuine interest, I think, amongst policymakers now to see how we can get functioning landscapes back. When I asked you about scalability, you talked about the range of scalability right down to window boxes. And something I noticed in Hammersmith Broadway the other day driving through was that there were wild looking poppies in a little, just a little patch of land by the road, you know, dividing the two lanes of traffic. And then on Saturday, we were up in sort of the border of Oxfordshire and Northamptonshire, and there were what appeared to me to be wild roses on the sides of the roundabout. And this gives me great pleasure when you see that, and I'm sure it gives many others great pleasure. But what about scalability sort of upwards and of comparable size areas of land to your own? I mean, how many such projects are there at the moment in the UK? And over the coming 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, how likely is it that we'll see growth in this area? I think at the moment, I, I think I'm right in saying there's about 100,000 hectares of, of land under private ownership um, that is now doing rewilding projects like NEP. So that's a, a really exciting. Rewilding Britain is, is spearheading this, this sort of movement. So they would be more up to date with the figures than me because there's stuff coming on, on online all the time, people joining the movement, as it were, not necessarily rewilding a whole estate, but, you know, part of it, um, farm clusters coming together to allow ribbons of rewilding through their land. So it's all beginning to kind of coalesce. I think it's going to continue on this amazing upward tra trajectory. I don't think it's just being optimistic on my part, but I think one of the, the key things, I think, is the private sector. I think there's a lot of private finance now available for projects like for rewilding projects. I think we're going to be seeing a switch from purely carbon chasing, carbon credits, you know, you're a company um, offsetting or investing in projects that will sequester carbon to offset their own footprint, but also to do something good that their shareholders and their um, customers and consumers want them to do. And I think we'll see that switch into biodiversity credits as well, or at least a combination of both, so that you're not just planting trees, Sitka spruce on, on peatland, which we know can be disastrous for the environment, but you're actually doing something that's positive for biodiversity as well. So I think rewilding ticks both those boxes. We've just heard, and we've had an amazing study that was partly financed by the government, and the, the company AgriCarbon came to NEP and did a big study, a thousand core samples into our soils to see how much carbon we're sequestering. And we are sequestering between 3.3 to 4.8 tonnes of carbon per hectare per year. Now that is equivalent to uh, a plantation. So, you know, if that's just rewilding soil, and we're not even talking about all of the above ground biomass of vegetation and trees, then, you know, that answers your problem. We don't have to go out there and be planting trees, which is carbon intensive for, for, for the uh, to begin with, we can actually just let nature do it for us. So I think we're going to see a lot more, a lot more of these kind of projects being financed by the private sector. Do you think that your name, Tree, has had an influence on how you've spent your <laughs> life? 
Well, it's taken about sort of five books for me to actually nail, you know, get that. I can't remember what the word is, you know, when your name sort of synchronizes with what your kind of your career, your life is. But certainly I've always been passionate about nature. And um, and now I do find myself talking more and more about trees and I kind of love it. Yes. <laughs> what would critics say of what you're doing? Are there critics of what you do? There definitely are critics. I think I think there's two there's two schools of critics, perhaps there's there's perhaps, you know, amongst the public people who are um, find rewilding a bit scary, perhaps, um, who are a little bit frightened of change, perhaps frightened of losing our cultural landscapes under a morass of ragwort and wetland. I think we try and address this in our book of wilding because there's a quiz at the end of the book, which is a set of questions which asks, where are you on the rewilding spectrum? And that's not really to alienate anybody. That's just to show that you could be slightly more conventional conservation or you can be very rewildy. We're all on the same page and it doesn't matter really where you are. Do what you feel comfortable with. And we've certainly noticed that amongst the sort of our local public, that the initial concerns of the scariness of the look of the place, you know, the fears have really subsided, I think, because people have learned a different aesthetic, you know, that the countryside doesn't need to be under such tight control. You don't lose the look of a cultural landscape, but you gain a lot of life. And so I think that slowly public perception is changing. I think the biggest obstacle is probably farmers who feel threatened by um, rewilding, perhaps in terms of land land sharing. Does 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 rewilding compete for agricultural productive land? And we would say absolutely not. We we see rewilding as working hand in hand with productive farming. I think we have to turn to regenerative agriculture. We know that conventional agriculture, ploughing and pesticides and chemicals cannot continue. That's a very short-term, unsustainable future for us. That's not where food security lies. But as as a kind of life support system for regenerative agriculture, rewilding provides everything that agriculture needs. It provides the buffers against extreme weather events that we're going to be experiencing more and more often. It replenishes the water tables. It can prevent floods. It provides the pollinating insects, the natural pest control. It restores soils. Um, it does. It really underpins a successful productive agricultural system. And if we can have ribbons of rewilding threading through our agricultural land, that actually increases your crop yields. There's many studies to prove this. So if we work with nature in this way, I think rewilding should be seen as agriculture's greatest ally rather than an enemy. The environmental movement, if one can still call it that, comes in sort of different shapes and forms, doesn't it? It has different strands, different people with different views and ideas sign up to it and not everyone agrees. And I'm curious where you see meat eating fitting into what you do. I was a vegetarian for two chunks of my childhood and then briefly as an adult. And I do eat meat now and sometimes I feel guilty about doing so. You discuss meat eating in the book. Could you kind of spell out to us where you stand on it? Well, I think we have more in common actually with with vegans and vegetarians than we do with the you know conventional um, livestock production. I think we certainly feel that we need to eat less meat as uh, you know globally. There was an interesting study recently which showed that if Europeans reduced their meat intake by fifteen percent, so that's not much, that would negate any need to import 
grain from Ukraine or and Russia combined. So we know that this is nuts, you know, using up all this land to feed grain to animals in unhealthy conditions. Uh, there's animal rights issues there. There's actually what the meat does to us because they're putting down the wrong kind of fats on these sort of diets. So the, the meat is unhealthy for us. We're simply eating too much meat and too much of the wrong meat. But at the same time, free roaming animals, herbivores are part of the nutrient cycle. They are wedded to vegetation, to plant life. It's how our ecosystems function. So the livestock will always, I think, play a role in regenerative agriculture and in rewilding. The bacteria that they return to the soil, the nutrients that they return to the soil through their dung and their urine are hugely important for soil restoration. A cow can carry 200 different species of seed in its gut and its hooves and its fur. So it's transporting these seeds around the moving plants around the landscape. The disturbances they create, the, the bull pits that a, a, a bull will create, um, the wallowing of of water buffalo or ponies around the margins of, of, of ponds, every single disturbance that they make physically creates another habitat for life. So we can't simply remove them from our landscapes. They need to be part of the, of the life cycle. So I think the answer is really eating much, much less meat, but being very careful where our meat comes from and make sure that it comes from regenerative agriculture, conservation grazing or rewilding projects. And I, I can imagine that culling, and then, of course, you would use the meat, is part of sustainability or can be part of sustainability. Because you, if we go back to what we were talking about earlier, about apex predators, without the apex predators, then communities of animals can exceed what is in their interest, perhaps, or, and or what is in the environment's interest. Absolutely. And I, I think really at NET, we are playing the role of the apex predator, if you like. The only other process that would regulate the numbers of animals would be starvation, you know, that the, they would grow to such an extent that they would eat out their food resources. And we're not prepared to see that. So we have our naturalistic herds, you know, with matriarchs at the top bossing about all the, um, you know, the social hierarchy. And we keep the herds in that kind of formation. So we we cull the animals in a kind of pyramid system so that you are still keeping the social interactions intact. We produce about 70 to 75 tonnes of meat a year. That's mainly beef and venison, but a little bit of pork in there too. And to our mind, that is the most, you know, ethical and healthy meat that you can get. So we are able to sell that direct to the consumer with our story attached, because it's important, I think, that people know that, you know, these animals are actually contributing to carbon storage. They're not a problem in terms of methane. These are actually restoring ecosystems so that they are a net carbon storage. Um, that's incredibly important, as well as their impact on increasing biodiversity. The one thing we would like to see, we're lucky we have an abattoir, which is very close to us, but we would like to have, we're working on, on trying to get a mobile abattoir that we would have at NEP. So we never have to transport the animals even five miles from here, that they would literally would not know what had happened. They might have, you know, that would be a couple of bad hours at the end of an amazing life. Hopefully not even bad, because I think even in, an, in, a, in a small mobile abattoir, you literally can have them grazing one minute and, you know, uh, and not the next. That would for us be close a system, close the circle. And we we would feel we 
we had watched over those animals and they could have had the best possible life and death. We haven't spoken about badgers and foxes and polecats and stoats and weasels. Do you have those guys on your land as well? We do. And when we were farming, you know, we were we were culling probably 100 foxes a year. You know, it's a conventional thing you do. But what we're doing now, and it's so interesting, is, you know, a, a fox will hold a territory and keep other foxes out. The vixen in a held territory will have probably two or three cubs instead of six. And none of the other females in her family group will come into estrus, so they won't be breeding. If you're culling animals, sorry, if you're culling, um, killing foxes, you're essentially creating a sink where territorial other, other foxes come in all the time to take over that territory. And the vixens will breed and so will the other females. So having these animals actually holding territory, you know, we haven't seen any conspicuous rise in foxes. They're, they're bolder. We see them during the day, but we feel that they're actually holding territory and not the population isn't rising. So it's very interesting how that works, you know, that just actually killing, killing actually can increase populations rather than keep them stable. The only animal I think we would control here is mink. Um, you know, non-native um, invasive species. And we're hoping to reintroduce water voles to this region. And that would be key is to make sure that they, they wouldn't have that, that, that um, predation. I get the sense that you work with experts in different fields. So, for example, people who know huge amounts about bird watching. you know, much more than I do and perhaps more than you do. Much I think more than I do. <laughs> alluded to that earlier. How many species of bird do you think you have at NET? Oh, my God. You see, I, I don't even know enough to tell you that. Um, we'd have to ask Penny, our ecologist, um, who is absolutely amazing. I don't know. All I all I know is that when you go out there on a on a summer morning or, you know, particularly even earlier in the spring, say two or three weeks ago at dawn, the sound of birdsong is so pervasive. It's a surround sound wall of noise and you can actually feel your lungs vibrating. It's absolutely astonishing. We 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 had a few complaints. I hope they were tongue in cheek from from campers saying that the racket at four o'clock in the morning is just beyond belief. But that's what you know. We've got to remember: nature isn't quiet. You know, when it's actually at its best, it should be really rackety. One of the iconic species I don't think we've either of us have mentioned so far is the stork. And there's wonderful footage on Instagram of sort of drone footage of. Yep. And, and and in amongst it, you can see these nesting stalks. And that's surely completely thrilling, isn't it? It is amazing. It's given a kind of almost like a kind of prehistoric dimension to the landscape. There, there's something dinosaurish about stalks in a way. And um, we've now got, we think, probably about 25, 26 or more chicks this year. So they're nesting in trees. We at the beginning of this is a reintroduction. So because they they need a colony to breed and they're just we'd we'd eaten them out of out of Britain, probably in, in the sort of medieval early medieval times. And so this is a reintroduction. But we'd originally put up a few posts and with nests on, you know, like they do in Spain and Portugal, thinking that they would nest on those. They've completely turned their beaks up at that. Where they nest is in the top of oak trees, which is of course where they would have nested before human beings were around. And it's just amazing. The sound, they they throw their necks back 
as a pair to bill clatter to each other, to pair bond. And it's also a territorial thing. So if another stork flies over, you'll hear this sudden bill clattering noise. And last year when we had a, a pair nesting on the chimney here, the first building that storks had nested on since 1416 in Britain, they were, the bill clattering was coming down my chimney. And to begin with, I had no idea what it was. It felt like the house was about to blow up. It's the most amazing you know, noise. And we've been missing that for hundreds and hundreds of years. And there's something about storks that is, you know, we identify with, I think, as human beings. It's going to be my next book uh, um, and how, you know, our culture has completely been intertwined with storks for thousands of years. And we've missed that in Britain. You think of storks, don't you, in, from children's books, but of storks nesting in on, on roofs, don't you? But they sort of go hand in hand with, sometimes with human population. It's a lovely relationship. And it's hugely important, I think, from a conservation point of view, because it's a bird that can really appeal to, to, to people living in towns and cities. And it will be nesting one day on St Paul's Cathedral in London. And so, you know, you see this beautiful, huge bird, you can identify it without owning a pair of binoculars. And then you see it flying off. It's an amazing flyer. One of the first aeroplanes was, was, bla- was based on the structure of a stork. And it flies out into the wider countryside to feed. And it will feed on grasshoppers, earthworms, small mammals, frogs, toads. And so you're, I think you know, people become so enamoured of these birds and so connected with them that the next step is, have they got enough to eat there in the landscape? And so it can be a huge, you know, sort of charismatic species that can bring people to nature restoration. Final question, Isabella. How hard do you work? And give us an idea of your passions outside of what you do for a living. I can imagine with the sort of things, the the way you spend your time, your kind of leisure time is probably so intertwined with, with the work and you're surrounded by this beautiful nature. But just tell us, A, how much you work and B, how you kind of get away from what everyone else is going towards to get away from urban life. <laughs> what, are you, what are you getting away from? Well, how well, do you get away? I mean, I, I have to say I am I am a complete workaholic and an insomniac um, because there's just so much to do and so much excitement out there. I find it very hard to calm down. So I do, I do do a little bit of meditation and I do a bit of yoga. And I've also started running. So that was uh, my daughter got me into that in lockdown. And I love that because it means I go out very early before people have started arriving to walk the footpaths and I can go for a five or six kilometer run and just hear nightingales and turtle doves. And it's just thrilling. So that's when I kind of absorb the the effects of, of rewilding rather than transmit. <laughs> that's how I recharge the batteries. And how can people come and stay at net? Well, we, we, we have a website, just nep.co.uk, and you can stay, um, you can either glamp or camp. People can walk the footpaths any time of year. We've got about 16 miles of footpaths, and we're going to be opening a cafe and shop in July. So there will be, you know, a place to actually sit and eat and take your time and enjoy it. So, yeah, it's it's it's, it's wonderful, actually, the, the the amount of people, but also the kinds of people who are who are finding us. It's absolutely it's it's wonderful. Isabella, thank you so much for answering my 20 questions. It's been a, a real delight, as I hoped and and expected it to be. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great chatting to you.